Thank you all for tuning in to Politics, Religion, and Whiskey, the Josh Terry Podcast, brought to you by Raising Grace Studios. want to give a big shout-out to all of our sponsors, Nobles Networking, Gridiron Coffee, Two Pilots Distillery, Derm Dude, and Diesel Crate. Thank you to our management company, Red Circle, and all the corporate sponsors that are involved with our show that run before, during, and after. Thank you. Um, folks, I'll go ahead and tell you, we play around on this show a lot. We have a good time. This is going to be one of the more heartfelt, more serious shows that we do. So I'm going to ask y'all to please lend me your ear the next little bit and your heart to this family. Listen up to, uh, to them. They have been through a struggle the past four years. Um, I am honored and also saddened to have to introduce this man and, he, in just a little bit of time, I've got to talk to him. He is a very strong man. He has a, a very, a very tough story to tell y'all, but it's a story that needs to be told to try to get justice for his son, David. I would like to introduce y'all to Mr. Scott Amquist. Um, Mr. Scott, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure meeting you so far, sir. Yeah, thank you so much, Josh. Uh, appreciate your efforts here. Well, uh, your story. Well, as soon as uh, as soon as your story was shared to me, well, as soon as David and your family's story was shared to me, uh, it it hit home with me. the The battles with mental health, the the everything, uh, just about it. The the corruption. It seems like that was involved in his death. The just every bit of it, and then the way that people shared it to me, I just knew that if there was anything that I could do that I wanted to. And this is, you know, I'm not a detective. I'm not anything that's special. Uh, I'm just a guy that knows how to run his mouth. And if, if I can get y'all story out there a little bit, then, you know, that's what Great. God's put in my way today. So um, first, off, first off, I would, I'd like for you to, you know, introduce yourself, tell folks a, a little bit about you. Um, and then uh, I'd like for, you know, people to know a little bit about David, tell them about your son. Sure. Well, I'm uh, Scott Elmquist up here in beautiful Cocado, Minnesota. Um, lived in Minnesota my entire life, raised four beautiful children. And uh, the gentleman we're talking about today was uh, Davy Boy Green is one nickname I had for him after the redheaded Irish boxer. Um, it was really about uh, it was really about his red hair. It, didn't have much to do with boxing and it certainly didn't have anything to do with the fact that Sugar Ray Leonard knocked out Davy Boy Green in the fourth round but he was a wonderful kid I literally could probably count on one hand how many times we had any issue and that's that's being transparent and honest but David was extremely extremely likable kid I mean I don't think there's anybody who met David who didn't like him he was a redheaded kid, uh, very sensitive. He was artistic. Uh, he had a real goofy sense of humor. He was a good ski racer. Um, I think his, his last two years ski racing, he won seven of the 11 um, last high school races. He liked to golf with his brothers. He had a special bond, you know, with his especially he only had one sister, but uh, they're just very close. And of course, his mother, he had a deep faith in Christ. He wasn't perfect. He had some issues, but uh, he was a wonderful young man and I miss him dearly. And 
the injustice that's been perpetrated really upon our family has just been absolutely outrageous. Uh, Mr. Scott, after, after reading what you sent to me and looking up and, and just finding out some of this stuff, I have just been in awe and, you know, there's no easy way to, to rip this bandaid off and, and dive into it. So what I would, what I would like to do is just kind of start on that night on February the 9th and yeah. just, just kind of just go ahead and just dive in and let you start yeah. by telling the events of that evening. Well, we got a phone call from his former wife, Miss X, that David had started a fire. It was in a very flat, uh, monotone voice um, stating that David had started the apartment on fire, that he started himself on fire, and that it didn't look good, which was, you know, the most horrific thing. Now, I should back up a little bit here. Um, three weeks before the fire, we had gone to David's apartment. We had noticed my wife and I, David exhibiting some strange behavior. So we did a drug test. Um, once we received the autopsy report on that night, um, he didn't have any, any, whatever, alcohol or drugs or anything. Um, was, he was that, dealing, was that he ever, was, was that ever an issue that y'all had um, with them before? Well, David uh, was under a lot of stress in his marriage. He confided in many people. And, you know, you think uh, like David was some hothead or what have you. Um, that wasn't the case, but he certainly was using cannabis uh, when he quit working. Um, he liked to drink as Captain Morgan. But um, the idea that he was some uh, whatever, alcoholic or um Clearly, we believe these things contributed very possibly to his mental health issues. We don't deny that, but he eventually went into a psychosis. And this episode, three weeks before his death, as well as when he died, he had no THC, nothing in his system, not his prescribed drugs, nothing. But uh, I always believed in transparency. And so I don't like to hide, you know, people die in sad, unfortunate circumstances, and then it's a hush-hush. Then people gossip and they speculate. I didn't want that. So when I eulogized David, you know, I was very candid and straightforward about everything. Um, so we ended up getting him into the mental hospital. He was released really under false pretenses by Miss X, who was on the witness stand. The judge had said that, to, told David, and I was not there due to illness, um, but he said, uh, David, I'm not so sure I'm going to let you out of the hospital. And uh, under oath, she was asked, you know, has this ever happened before? And she said no. And yet in the medical records, when she was interviewed just three days before his death or released from the hospital, I should say, uh, she said, oh, he's been doing this bizarre stuff for three months, last month and a half. We didn't know anything about that until three weeks before his death when we went to his apartment. When you say bizarre stuff, do you mind kind of giving us a little insight to what a bizarre occurrence would have been? Well, we had a late uh, Christmas at our house. Uh, he was just acting strange. We told him to dress up. So we're going to just take some family pictures, you know, just don't be totally casual. And he ended up just kind of dressed up with his dress shirt 
And it just wasn't like David. And then he just acted weird, you know, just strange, um, whatever, just a strange, strange disposition. I don't know what I can say, but I you look you. at him like, dude, dude, what's going on? You just know? out of the normal for him. Absolutely. Okay. So we went to his, his apartment then and we got him to the hospital. He was there. Miss X under oath got him out of the hospital and we wanted him out. But we had never heard about this two, three month, month period where he's doing bizarre. It was only at that Christmas party that was later, you know, after the new year that we said something's going wrong here. Um, so anyways, he got out of the hospital. You know, he it was supposed to be just an acute uh, psychosis that they had expected him to be, uh, you know, recover fully from. He went skiing, you know, checked out his buddies, you know, they think the day before he died. And uh, he was very sensitive. The last day on his, on this earth, you know, he came home to talk to me about his wife and his marriage. And he said it was toxic. She man manip manipulated everything said he wanted to get a divorce. He asked me, uh, being a sensitive kid, how would this affect you, dad, at the church? And um, my wife said, you know, what would happen if you went back and talked to your wife about this, you know, getting a divorce? He said she'd go ballistic. And eight hours after that, my son is dead, and he's never been, never threatened suicide, even when he was in psychosis. Um, he has never been violent. And um, so then I get this horrific phone call, and... Um, we just go from there. It's just, just a bizarre thing. Did, did, uh, did Mrs. X, did Mrs. X ever have any, let's say red flags or warning signs to you guys? Did anything ever seem out of the norm to, to y'all? Or did you just seem like it was a normal married couple having issues? Yeah. And you know, I'm a little reluctant, but I'm going to answer your question. I'm going to give you my opinion on Miss X. I mean, I think if you had a forensic psychiatrist look at her records, she dealt with serious abandonment issues. In fact, I'll tell you one episode that six months after their marriage at my son Seth's wedding, uh, there was a dance hall and then a bar separated between a hallway. And she came barreling around the corner in front of David's aunt and uncle, sister and other friends. And with gritting teeth, as it has been described to me, double pumped, uh, flipped him off like this. And um, she later denied it. A everybody that saw it was just like, uh, uh, you know, just taken aback. Like, what, what is this about, you know? And at the time, you know, shortly thereafter, uh, they were around the house. And I remember uh, we asked them about it. And she, she said, you know, I was just putting my hands up like this saying, come on, David, you know, what's going on? And I remember looking at David and I could tell he was embarrassed. And I just thought, you know, I'm going to let them work that out on their own, you know, their marriage. Um, so there, that's a, you know, I mean, we're a conservative family. Mm -hmm. You know, my kids might have a beer. Um, there's other things we could talk about, other <laughs> dynamics about my family, but uh, quite conservative. And to have somebody uh, come into our family and, you know, act like that. I mean, yeah, I think she's, I think she's a sociopath, frankly, but again, I don't care to editorialize too much on her. I would like to have the uh, a legitimate investigator look at this because for me, this is a slam dunk. And the only reason it hasn't been a slam dunk is because the police made 
just egregious errors uh, that night that David died. Well, well, let's start navigating towards that way because that that's some of the things that you have mounds of factual evidence on um, that is just mind-blowing. Uh, I, I guess we've kind of led up to that night now of February the 9th. To, can you kind of tell people what happened? Sure. Well, I get this phone call from Miss X, you know, uh, she says, you know, it doesn't look good. We jump in the car. I was up on my laptop. It was like uh, 20 to 12 or something. And I was doing work and I'm thinking, gee whiz, I got to get to bed here. And um, I noticed on my phone, which was upstairs, she had called me like a half dozen times. And I thought, oh, my, I was actually shaking when I picked up the phone because I thought she's going to bawl me out because David wants a divorce. And, you know, I figure she's mad as hell. And so uh, then she was calling my wife, who just by chance happened to have her phone in the bedroom. So all of a sudden I see my wife walking down the hallway, you know, you know, without her glasses on trying to get to her phone. And then I, I, she called back on my line. So I picked it up. She told me this, hey, David uh, lit himself on fire. And I'm like, you know, like, what? You know, what are you talking about? You know, it doesn't look good. So there I am. Uh, we jump in our car. We got to drive about 45, 50 minutes to Minneapolis to the burn unit. And um, she calls us on the way there again in a very flat monotone. Um, I spoke to the surgeons. There's nothing they can do. They give them a 1% chance to survive. So then we proceeded from Waverly, Minnesota. My wife had to drive because I was inconsolable. And we went there and saw Davy Boy on a ventilator, burned, recognizable, but essentially, uh, what do you want to say, uh, half mummified, if you will. And uh, anyways, it was horrific. So I asked Miss X, I said, you know, you know, what happened? Um, you know, tell me what happened. So let me gather my thoughts here briefly. Um, she said, oh, he poured some kind of oil over his head. You know, as a souvenir, David kept, it was a peculiar thing, but I guess he was enamored with the idea that you could pump oil out of the ground and refine it, you know? So he had souvenirs of this Bakken oil in Gatorade bottles, as well as a big jug that he kept in his, his apartment. We knew it, we've seen it in there. But then she... Um, she says, yeah, it was some kind of oil. And I said, well, was it that Bakken oil? And then she looked up to me and, and the way I would describe it was fake, you know, bad acting. Like, uh, yeah, that's what it was. Like she's surprised. Um, and then again, it's, I, I'm thinking there's something seriously wrong here. My son wants to, um, you know, he was going to divorce her, move home the next day. And all of a sudden he's pouring Bakken oil on himself lighting himself on fire and she pretends like she doesn't know what it's about. So that was one thing. But again, I couldn't wrap my brain around. I knew there was something wrong, but I, I just couldn't go there. I asked her, I said, how long did you have um, from the time he woke you up, supposedly dripping, covered in Bakken oil? And she said two to three seconds. He grabbed her and pushed her out of the apartment. And I said, well, did you try to get back in? And she said, no, he locked the door. So that was pretty much, pretty much it, you know, believing that, 
He locked the door behind him, lit himself on fire, and that's it. But unfortunately, that's not even close to the truth. Yeah, and we're, we're going to get definitely more into the truth. I'm trying to get into where I'm quoting you directly here, and I'm just having a hard time finding it. I'm sorry you ever had to see David that way. Uh, it, there's something that a parent should never see. Um, I'm, I want to put the magnitude to this because it helps fill in the, the rest of the story later on as far as some of the events that happened. But what Mr. Scott had to see is where he even states in this documents that fire and rescue was even traumatized, that some had to receive counseling, some had to have time off because of David's condition. Um, no, no parents should ever have to see that, Mr. Scott. I'm sorry. Um, the only reason, like I said, I bring that up is it's puzzle pieces that'll get connected later on, as well as, you know, Mrs. X stating that the door was locked. Sure. Uh, when, when did you start, I guess after all that was over and, and after you had those conversations with Mrs. X at the hospital shortly thereafter, David passed mm-hmm. at the funeral in the next coming up days, you were under the impression that David had committed suicide. Yeah, that is correct. You know, um, two days, I believe it was before the funeral, my daughter, who was good friends with her at the time. In fact, Miss X had lived on their property out in North Dakota in a double wide. Um, so they were good friends. And Amy, I just told Amy, my daughter, that I said, there's something really wrong here. She really wasn't buying into it. And um, she convinced Miss X to make a recording to share with us um, to back up a little bit. The day after David passed, my wife and I drove up to her parents' house and um, we went in there. My wife sat alongside her, pushed the hair off of her face. I sat in the corner and I asked, I said, can we go into another room because there's other family members walking through and his her mother said uh, no you know we just stay here and then uh my wife said something i said you know what happened um you know we talked to david that afternoon and he said things weren't good and that's when miss x's mother got really upset now i'm a i'm a stubborn swede and um yeah whatever whatever that's worth to you but it was really by God's grace that this thing didn't erupt into some odd thing, you know. But anyways, I just got up then and I told my wife, I said, we got to leave. And I said, Nancy, we got to go. So I went out and sat. She was in there a, a few more minutes. And, you know, for all practical purposes, she basically didn't want to talk about it. She said she'd been talking to enough people about it. And then, then you know, and this is not maybe not worth mentioning, but then they, they lie that I said some stuff and I was mad. I literally said, can we go to another room? And I said, Nancy, we need to leave. Those are the only words. On judgment day, there's no variation. That's all I said. So we tried to get some answers. So then my daughter, so we were just kind of fed up with the whole thing. I didn't want to go visit her of uh, the potential whatever issues uh, that may arise. So then my daughter, they met, they're talking about funeral arrangements. And then they agreed to record on my daughter's phone, what happened. And they, she agreed to that. She said, you know, as long as you delete it after. So I said, that's fine. And um, Amy gave her, 
gave me her phone and she said, you know, you got to delete this after. So I said, that's fine. I said, I want your, your brother, Eric, to listen to it. So Eric and I came into my office and I pulled out my recorder and I recorded it and uh, gave the phone back. And I didn't tell Amy initially about this because she would have been upset. And I listened to that. I just said, this is nonsense. This is complete bullshit. And anybody with half a brain could figure this out. But because of the egregious errors that the Plymouth Police Department made, um, we never had any integrity whatsoever to any investigation. So you could, you know, I, I can just see it in your face. I mean, I, I don't know how, what a way to say this. You're a father or a mother knows. It, you know, when you, when you make eye contact with somebody and they've done your child wrong, or they've done something to harm someone that you love. You just know there's a gut feeling that comes along with it. And I'm having to make eye contact with you right now. And I can sit here and I can tell in the bottom of my heart, you would not have to show me a lick of evidence. You would not have to supply me with anything for me to believe you. It's, I appreciate that. It, I appreciate that. It's the fact I can, I can sit here. So it's, it's, it's rough. And, you know, I, I mean, this with no disrespect. I didn't know your family. I have, I, I have nothing to gain from this besides for getting views and downloads, you know, and I, I mean that in no bad way, no, but, not at all. but, but it's the fact that you, you, I would run through a damn wall for you right now. Cause I can just tell that this is wrong. That there's yeah. no, there's no, what you seem whenever you said bullshit while ago, you looked up like you were saying a bad word. Um, and it, it, that just shows what kind of man you are. I, I, I really respect the fact that when you said that, if you heard all the bad things that I say on this show, you would be like, oh, I can say whatever I want to. But the fact that I, you just, you can tell that you have an amazing heart and the fact that you're fighting this way for your son to have justice. It just, it gives me chills sitting here and the strength that God has given you to sit here and fight for your son. And I'm just, I, I'm just, I'm just in awe of you, Mr. Scott. Um, now after that, uh, I, as I was reading through this, um, I really wish I would have stayed in line with it and not got off topic, but, uh, you, you spoke at the funeral and I guess up to the funeral, you still, even though some of these things have happened, I guess you still kind of had to fake it as for other people that you still thought it was a suicide though, right? Yeah. Well, so miss X tells me at the hospital that, oh, no, I couldn't get back in. He locked the door. The next day, and the, my son-in-law and daughter will swear under oath. She said the same thing. Oh, no, he locked the door behind him. But here's the real clincher. So on a Monday, David, this was a Thursday night. Um, he died then Friday morning, you know, uh, 2 o'clock. You know, they took him off the ventilator, 2.45 or something like that. Um, but anyway, so then it's Friday. We're completely just devastated. Uh, you can't imagine the level of grief. So I call the Plymouth lead investigator, Heath Bird, and I talked to him on the phone. And I told him, I said, listen, Heath, David wanted to divorce. He was going to move home. And he said, um, well, uh, you know, he pushed her out and locked the door. So for me, I couldn't comprehend why she couldn't call 911 if he was acting crazy or what have you. So I'm, I'm thinking 
And there are statutes relating to a vulnerable person for manslaughter. And I won't get into all those details, but I believe if you had a reasonable uh, prosecutor with any integrity whatsoever, she would have been prosecuted on that. That's a slam dunk. Now the question you can get into who started the fire. And I also think that if I could present the material to a grand jury, uh, that's without subpoena power, just what I've gathered through my own private investigation, I think she'd be indicted. But that's just my opinion. And that's why we're, we want the truth. We want a legitimate prosecutor that, uh, you know, is a zealot for justice, not covering the police uh, behinds. Let's get, let's get into some of that evidence. Um, Cause that's what, that's what you're trying to do uh, is you're trying to get a third party. Uh, you're trying to get someone to come in. That's not part of the County police department there. Correct. Yeah. And let me, let me finish, go back to bird. Okay. So bird tells yeah. me, yeah, bird tells me, Oh, you, you know, he locked the door. And then I said, well, how did they get the door open? And he says, you know, I don't have the file in front of me. But, um, and I said, well, did they kick the door open? He says, I'm not sure, um, but I do know they propped the door open. So one of the first things I looked for was when I, I received the first photos was from the state fire marshal, Casey Stotts. And in those pictures right away, I said, I wanna see the door. You know, how did they get in there? And then we later found out from the state fire marshal when he interviewed the maintenance worker, which was probably, in July or August, I believe it was August, and this was before I, I spoke to the number two man down at Hennepin County uh, Attorney's Office, which is Alan J. Harris, who is the, a big shooter, arguably one of the best legal minds in Minnesota, I've been told. Um, but anyways, so he continues this, this idea that David locked the door, which would be a slam dunk for suicide. You know, if he did that, and it's just, but I'm still missing, I knew there was something wrong. You know, what would motivate a father to order the autopsy photos to say, I got to see this. All right. And sure enough, we find what I believe is definitive forensic evidence that puts David, uh, you know, what happened during the fire, his position, where he was standing, all of this, which tells you the statistical probability of him starting the fire in that position is next to none. And that and that's the projected area, right? Uh, what's that? The projected area. The projected area of the fire? Yeah, where well, I hold on. Let me make sure I'm doing this right. Um, right. Yeah, so that's where you're talking about is where you've got so much right here. I'm trying not to screw this up. That's right. <laughs> I want to. No, that's all right. You know, I'm just. I want to make sure I'm not going to mess this up. Um, sure. You've just got. You've got these four big pieces of evidence here: the door being locked, the lighter, the knife. And then the 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 projected area. So oh, protected. I thought you were saying projected. I'm sorry. I'm mean protected. You got that protected. southern. You got that southern yeah. twang. My bad. To my bad. My bad. Yeah, yeah. My bad. I'm sorry. Yeah. Start with that, I guess. Um, because I kind of want it to lead up the way that you break down the last four steps and what you sent me is mm -hmm. it, it's a it's a shoe in. It's uh, it's where if you were to get in front of a grand jury, if you were to get in front of anybody. Um, I, I know it simplifies or it sums up the whole rest of the documents that you sent me. Um, but I think that's just, it just really, it, it just puts everything in a nutshell for you. Sure. 
Well, I think it's important for the listeners to understand the condition of David when he is in psychosis. Yes. So I, I do mention this in the information I gave to you, but going back then to the night we brought him to the hospital three weeks before his death, David ended up, because we did a drug test, he stripped naked in front of us in his kitchen. And I, you know, I'm just telling my wife, go with it. You know, we want to de-escalate. Uh, things just went from bad to worse. And before long, David is literally down on his hands and knees, um, praying. And uh, his wife kneels before him and begins to aggressively slap him across his face. And I just use the phrase aggressively slap. Um, my wife screamed, you know, what are you doing? And he said, she said, well, it's worked before. Um, so, you know, keep in context, here's a, you know, here is a 6'2", 190-pound former oil worker on his hands and knees, and she's essentially has an open fist, you know, open hand smacking him. She uses the word smack, which is in a recording. She would smack him. So keep in mind, David is completely defenseless. He doesn't know what's going on, and he takes three good slaps or her terminology smacks to the face and he does nothing. So that's important for your listeners to understand when you talk about the protected area, by all indications, David was positioned over the sink and that's the only place in this very small radius of where the fire was happened. And uh, we had our independent fire experts say, this is where David, he was the item that was in fire in this area. Um, yeah, so there, it's a very small area. So you ask yourself, how does a guy randomly pour Bakken oil over the top of his head? He gets burns on over 90% of his body, but then miraculously, there's a protected area on his wrists. And if you look at where it's at, there's an inconsistent spill pattern, which appears there's something obstructing it on the edge of the sink. And then you have this oil um, running down directly below the sink. And the fire was right there to the right of that by the dishwasher. And David has burned more severely on his right side, under his right arm, and it's very distinct horizontal line. Again, anybody, you know, I think any person, you don't have to be a forensic uh, pathologist or scientist or what have you to say the only explanation he was in this position. So I don't know how you ignite yourself and pour oil on yourself, first of all, get no oil there, and then uh, light yourself on fire, and then they, they never found the lighter. You, so you explain it better than me reading it. When when yeah. I was when I was reading it earlier, I I had read it as if his hands were almost bound, as if they were duct taped together. No, okay. No, he was just positioned in a in a you know um, you know bent over in a posture and, okay uh, we will have information on david's webpage that you can okay. look we just did that filming today so okay. people can check it out they can look at the pictures and see for themselves you please tell them the name of the webpage and when it will be available sure it is available right now it okay. is truthfordavid.com and you can sign a petition we already have like uh 24 000 people that have signed it and uh, I would like uh, 100,000, and we may have a 
sing along down at the governor's mansion, whatever it takes, because these folks need to be held accountable, not just the police, but Hennepin County's attorney's office, which I can expound upon, but has historically, in my opinion, is a corrupt institution. Uh, by the time they get done hearing the rest of this, they're going to agree with you. We're going to make sure you get that 100000 on the petition. There you go. Um, so, and, and then when we have this sing-along, wherever you live, come to it and let the world know. Because you know what? Forget about Scott Umquist. Forget about our family. As a society, if we tolerate this nonsense from our prosecutors and from our police officers, and let me say this, these folks with this blue wall of silence, they're, they are literally jeopardizing the life of the honest, God-fearing, hardworking police officers that are out there risking their lives to maintain some order in our society. So if you are a dedicated police officer, forget the blue wall of silence. It's the blue wall of bullshit. And it's time it, it ends. Yeah, we, we have a lot of police officers on this show. And I'll tell you one thing. There's no one who dislikes dishonest police officers more than good-hearted good police officers there you go so uh the next bit of evidence you have you want to go with it sure, sure. well i think going back to just to finalize and yeah go ahead listen, listeners to appreciate so we visit three days after uh mr bird the lead investigator tells me on that monday oh the door was locked then we went down and met with another you know, uh, senior Hennepin County attorney, Tara Ferguson Lopez. I have no problem naming names because um, I will swear under oath everything I say and also have recordings supporting a lot of the information that I'm sharing with you. So here we meet with Lopez and um, we'll get back to her too on another uh, point she made, uh, but she upheld the same notion that the door was locked. But then a couple of months after, so this is June, this is four months after David's death, we meet with her, oh yeah, the door is locked. Then comes August and the fire marshal interviews the maintenance worker. He says, hey, I don't have keys to the apartment and I just walked right in, it was never locked. So stay with me now, come December, so this is 10 months after and uh, six months after visiting with Miss Lopez, we meet with the number two guy right behind Mike Freeman, and I have this recorded. He says, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but the police did say the door was locked. And um, but he didn't know that the, the state fire marshal had interviewed the maintenance worker who said no. So I answered it. You know, I said, no, uh, the maintenance workers walked right in and he just paused and said, oh, and it's, it's worth pointing out that in it, in an email that he sent to me, he said he can't speak to the actions of the police except to what's referenced in the police report. Well, after waiting 32 months, we finally get the police report and there's 11 references, at least 11, that say the door was unlocked. So why are they upholding this false notion that the door was locked by two senior Hennepin County attorneys uh, the, the lead investigator when all along they knew it was not. So you, so that, that's a critical point in all this and it, it speaks to the corruption. Um, so I think the next, next point to be made was regarding why they didn't rescue David. Okay. According to one sworn officer of the law, David, uh, or his Miss X said, 
he possessed knives. Okay, David is the most, if you met him, he's the most chill, passive dude. Um, and uh, so they refused to allow the fire and rescue people to go in there because she scared him thinking he's a crazy man. He just got out of the mental hospital. He'll attack you. So follow this now and think about this. Here comes the police. They put a bunker in the door. They have two police officers on each side of the door. They set up a command center across the hallway and they refuse to allow over a dozen fire and rescue people to go in there. And um, yeah, so David's there. Um, from the time the 911 call came in, it was 38 minutes and then they shoot out the windows. And all of a sudden David comes stumbling out of there, flesh falling off his body, scraped against the walls, collapses, and um, they panic. They say, what have we done? And then all of a sudden they start with this bullshit narrative uh, from what they told the media. The chief uh, uh, of police told the Associated Press that the firefighters rescued the man, which is absolutely false. It's just the opposite. It blows my mind when I saw the 38 minutes in the first place. Like that was just, just insane. But please explain to everybody why it took the 38 minutes. I know that it was about the knife, but tell them why they knew about or why the knives even came into play. Well, it, it came into play because of what Miss X said, scaring them. So they thought, here's a crazy guy that's going to attack them. But what's interesting is um, when they realize their horrific mistake, and as you mentioned earlier, the fire and rescue people, according to one employee of the Plymouth Fire Department, they, we wanted to go get this, all right? My daughter said, let's go to have closure for our family. Let's go meet with the, the Plymouth Fire Department and thank them for rescuing David, all right? And this gentleman tells me, oh, no, they don't want to talk about this. Some of them, they had to take time off from work. Some even had to go for counseling. So that's where, you know, where I learned that information. At that point in time, we're going there saying, hey, thanks. This is terrible. We accepted their nonsense, their lies, all because they made a terrible mistake. So how did this thing blow up? Real, and it's irrefutable evidence. So there's no if and when on this. There's a pristine knife put down by a chair where David had sat at least part of this time when he was in this smoke-filled apartment burned, you know, on 95% of his body, his eye, eyes lids were inverted. He couldn't see Ugh. inhalation burns inside his mouth, all around his mouth. It's horrific. And, and they started this false narrative. And so they plan a knife to make it look like it. Well, then there's a problem. There's a problem because I, I consult a forensic scientist and says, dude, there's no way this could have happened. And then they go into whatever, a defensive mode, uh, just more and more nonsense that they put out. Um, for example, the, on the night of the fire, they told the state fire marshal that there was a brief standoff with a man. I can assure you that David was no threat to anybody. He couldn't have ever touched that knife and he certainly could have never attacked anyone. It was miraculous that he even got out of the apartment. But get this, it goes much further. In their report, they say David came out, came out and said, I could use a drink of water. 
Again, get any forensic pathologist and they're going to say that's bullshit. Now, let me finish here. Okay. So they come out and then they also said they commanded once we got the police report for David to crawl to his left, which if you saw a mummified human being, the last thing you're going to do is say, hey, crawl, then get this. In the fire department report, they said that the Plymouth police checked the individual for weapons. Are you buying that? No. Check the individual for weapons. Here's David collapsed. You think you're going to check this person for weapons? So that's the false narrative. Well, well, what it just says kind of contradicts themselves too, doesn't it? It's where if they said, and by the way, what I said earlier obviously was wrong. I must have. I must have misread something to where they said they went to counseling and everything. I'm sorry uh, if I messed that up earlier. Oh yeah. oh, yeah. No, the fire and rescue people, according to them, some had to take time off from work based on what they saw. Well, yeah. well, isn't that contradictory or contradicting themselves that if they said at some point in time that they had to go to counseling because of his condition, but also that he was threatening with a knife? Oh, well, absolutely. But again, this is off the record. This is about yeah. two weeks, maybe after David's passing. And I'm calling saying, Hey, and he gives him this, this information. He doesn't know, uh, you know, what I'm going to learn in the future. He doesn't know how this thing is going to blow up in their face, which I think it is. And that's why we've gotten the response that we have with just the little bit of information people know. I mean, I have about 40 points that are legitimate that we will be dropping on David's webpage, and it's overwhelming. I think these people are going to be running to the mountains and hiding in caves by the time everybody hears about this nonsense. Well, uh, I don't. I don't think we kind of. I know that we talked about them being uh, saying that he was threatening with the knife, but have we didn't talk about the condition of the knife, did we? No, I mean I consulted a forensic scientist who said this is a pristine knife based upon David's hands. He could have not have touched that knife. And the only people that had access to the apartment was the Plymouth Police Department. And they're the only ones that had a motive to do such a thing. They tried to discount finally after waiting nearly three years for that report saying, they just say, we examined the knife and it played no role in the incident. Um, you know, I should also back up here and interject a little bit. Um, approximately a month after David's passing, I went to visit with Heath Bird at the Plymouth Police Report or Plymouth Police Department. And he told me, he said, uh, I said, you know, please explain to me. I said, how could David survive 10 to 15 minutes? Because that was the timeline that I, I had just based on what I was gathering from Miss X and everything. And then I could tell there's something wrong going here you know generally most people can tell when somebody's lying to them right and yes, i'm thinking sir. what is what is this nonsense he says well it was more like 30 minutes and um you know we believed he was lying in wait well interestingly when we finally get the police report there's no reference to david lying in wait the reason they didn't allow him is because quote unquote he purposefully lit himself the fact that is the the phrase the fact that he purposefully lit himself on fire and was acting irrationally, it would not have been wise to allow the fire and rescue people to go in there. I mean, what an absurd statement. So what did they say to the firefighters? 
hey, you can't go in there. We're going to set up a bunker. We're going to put police on each side of the door. We're going to set up a command center. Because why? Because the guy lit himself on fire and is acting irrationally. And let me go further. In the police report, there's not one reference of any communication with David. They couldn't see in the apartment. They didn't know where he was. There's no communication. So to say he was acting irrational, it's all based upon one witness, their star witness, who David wanted to divorce, and he was going to leave the next day. Okay, I've got, I've got a question, and this kind of this backs yep. it up. This backs it up to the very beginning of that sure. night. Yeah. Okay, so when Mrs. X leaves the apartment and she states that the she's kicked out of the apartment and the apartment is locked. I read where she had enough time when she is being thrown out of the apartment that she had enough time to grab the keys, her cell phone and the dog. Correct. Exactly. Okay. Here's, here's where, and you do not have to answer this because I did not ask this before. And this, mm-hmm. this might be me being a conspiracy theory person. Okay. Yeah. Did yeah. in any type of way, does she have any, connection with that police department in any father brother cousin any relation with uh anything like that no the only thing i've noticed again as i'm sure your listeners are uh, appreciating i i've studied pretty much everything i can every nook and cranny the only thing i saw is the police chief they both uh graduated i don't know if she ever graduated she was actually a um, she was working on a master's degree in psychology, if you can imagine that. And they both have the same alma mater, but you know, that, that wouldn't okay. play any role. Um, no. So she never had any direct, uh, thing but that, uh, that, with the Plymouth police. Uh, like I said, that was just somebody going down a rabbit hole there. Me sure. just trying to see if there's something there that's not, it just seems like it almost seems like someone's covering me not knowing anything besides the information that you had sent me and you really, I think what you send almost does you leave her out of a whole lot of things. Like I don't, and like you have not mentioned her a lot to where it almost seems in me from my point of view, she seems extremely sketchy in all of this. And you don't try to make her out to look sketchy is what I'm trying to say. You just state the facts. You don't try to make her look bad. Um, you just state what you know. And it's just, she just looks like, it, she just doesn't look well in all of this, Is I guess is what I'm trying to point out. And you always want to, anybody that watches these unsolved things or stuff like this, it always ends up being something like that, unfortunately. Yeah, I mean, I'm not, uh, you know, as a Christian, um, I'm not going to, there's there's maybe one individual I would like to raise money for charity and have a bare fist boxing match with. (laughs) And uh, I wouldn't mind doing that. I might even still make that proposition. Yes, sir. But um, other than that, uh, that uh, sin, um, you know, I don't want to live my life with bitterness. And these folks, what I'm looking for is they need to be held accountable. According to the scriptures, they're my neighbors. So I don't think we should go out and, you know, harass them at their house. But on a legal standpoint, each and every one of these people, in my opinion, if they want to embrace dereliction of duty, that's fine. I think the evidence says, frankly, a conspiracy. And I'm not into conspiracy theories, okay? 
I may be a conservative, but I, I haven't been embracing a lot of the conspiracy theories that are going around. But that's just my opinion. So. Hey, I, I promise you there's too many. There, 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 yeah. There's way too many for any of us. Uh, I'm a middle of the road. I, I'm a Christian. We talked about that a little bit beforehand. But, uh, you know, I'm, I lean a, a lot of conservative views. But uh, um, we, we, that's not what this is about. But the only reason, the only reason why I was asking that is, you know, I I found it funny that just it seems like this entire time from the second that she walks out the door, that it just seems like the police in the fire department took her word as gospel the second that they walk out that they just kind of just went with her. Yeah, and absolutely. But if you if you understand it, think about it. They planted a knife, so they are all in. Essentially, they are aiding, and if if Miss X is guilty, yeah, okay, even if it's not calling nine one one, okay, under a, a vulnerable adult in Minnesota, they effectively aided and abetted her by planting a knife. So keep in mind, once they did that, and I had pictures of that and evidence of that, there's no turning back, and that's why they're pushing back. I mean, you're talking about a police. Uh, uh, department planting evidence at the scene of an unnatural death. And after that, it went from bad to worse, all the nonsense that they, you know, from the state fire marshal report, which I've referred to, it's just silly. I mean, these people are intelligent, but they have little to no wisdom. Well, uh, there's one of the, one of the other things that we haven't even brought up yet is the lighter. Sure. Um, would you like to tell them uh, about the lighter? Sure. Well, Miss X talks. I mean, it's absurd if you think about it. She said on two separate occasions, David had poured oil of the, over the top of his head. So if you understand with unrefined Bakken oil, it would have been in his eyes, it would have been on his hands, but somehow he's pouring this and then he has this lighter in his hand. He has the stove on supposedly with glowing, um, the glowing burners. It's an electric stove. And he's got this lighter. She wrestles with him. Now, David's 6'2", 190 pounds. He was. She's a petite, five foot tall. She wrestles with him. Gets the lighter from him. But then he gets it back. She gets oil on her. She goes into the bathroom. And she said on the first interview with the lead investigator, which was a day after I met with him, when he said David was lying in wait, um, I'm losing my train of thought. It's been a long day. You're fine, um, sir. She, she, said, she said she went there because she said, if he lights this, I'm going to go up in flames too. So she went, goes into the bathroom now. Picture this. This is not a plausible statement. Who's going to believe this? So her husband is standing there pouring oil over her head, over his head. She goes to wash up, comes back again, wrestles with him. Uh, gets the lighter out of his hands again, and uh, then supposedly pushes her out of the apartment. So that's a different version than what she told me at the hospital. She said, I said, how long did you have? And she said, you know, two seconds, three seconds. And now all of a sudden she says in another recording, she had, you know, it was quarter to 11 or 10 to 11. The fire alarms or the 911 call came in at a minute to 11 on that evening. Um, so the missing lighter, um, they never found the lighter again, as I said, and people will be able to see the, the fire was very small. They could never find it. Um, she said the, you know, 
The three law enforcement agencies couldn't find it. The state fire marshal couldn't find it. But then miraculously, without skipping a beat, when she is interviewed by the state fire marshal, um, she says without hesitating, oh yeah, my mom found that. It was lying over by the kitchen table on the floor. Well, we have pictures. There's nothing, it's not much clutter. And it would seem to me that if you had three separate law enforcement agencies combing through that, they would have spotted it, but they didn't. Could they? Statistically, yes. But it's just one of many, like the lawyers say, it's the totality of the evidence. So they never find it. And it's worth pointing out that the state fire marshal knew this, but he never references anything about a missing lighter in any of his reports. Instead, he concluded, working with the police department, that David then pushed her out of the apartment, wicked a towel with Bakken oil and threw it on the stove. And that's how the fire started. Now, my independent fire investigator uh, looked at this and said, none of this is consistent with any basic standards of the National Fire Association or whatever it is. And he said his, his thesis or hypothesis is tenuous at best. So it's complete rubbish. And in my opinion, he's complicit in this whole bullshit because they wanted to, they didn't want any loose ends. Hey, forget that. We can't find the lighter. So now all of a sudden we're going to say the fire started over the stove with a smoldering. When they arrived, there was a smoldering towel on the stove. Clearly, if that was the ignition source, that would have been disintegrated. So, so the missing lighter never found the lighter. Uh, uh, unless, of course, you believe Miss X that the the her mother found it a week after Miss X after the fire never returned to the apartment, according to her testimony. Well, well two two questions. Uh, first one. It, it, David supposedly pushed Mrs. X out of the apartment. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yep. When he's pushing her out of the apartment, how did she grab the dog with the cell phone and the keys? Does she does she make a statement about that? No. If, tell me. if he is six two and she is five foot tall and yeah. he is aggressively pushing her out, and she had what has told you or the statement she has made is she's had two to three seconds to get out of the apartment. How does she have time to grab cell phone keys and a dog? You tell me, like I said, it's one of as far as Miss X concerns, it's probably 20 things that's piled up against her that is complete nonsense okay second one mm-hmm. that I, I don't understand the maintenance man is the person who comes into the unlocked apartment correct, mm-hmm. to, correct. To, that puts that puts the fire extinguisher out on david correct that's right yeah uh, okay was there a towel on the stove at the time burning if there was if there was a towel on the stove burning at the time did the maintenance man put that out as well what has he um, made? Has he made a statement that saying that he put a towel out on the stove when he came in? Because that would have been on fire too when he came in, right? No, it was only smoldering, and it was, it was smoldering. smoldering. Even, okay, even when the police arrived, they apparently used some device that they could reach in, and they pulled this off the stove, which is like, I mean, seriously, I mean, this is yeah. uh, so. There's no like way comical. Yeah, yeah so there's it's, absolutely it's so there's absolutely no way. Yeah. And let me say this too: the maintenance worker who I also uh, interviewed has a serious drinking problem. I was told that by the state fire marshal. And if we got him on the stand, you know, he's got his issues. 
Um, nothing against him. I'm glad he went in there, put out the fire. Um, he shot David with a fire extinguisher. And the way he describes it, uh, David had fire extinguisher dust on his body, which perfectly lines up with what he said. So, um, you know, as a witness, you could certainly undermine him, but it is uh, confirmed by the autopsy that uh, he hit him with the fire extinguisher. It's irrefutable. So, but here's go back here. And again, this is a complex story, okay. but they, in the state fire marshal, when the three agencies res uh, responded and reported to the state fire marshal, they note that the maintenance worker put out the fire, but they say no one saw the man, which is, so they know that he put out the fire, but they don't know that they saw him and shot him with a fire extinguisher. So I don't know how that could happen in any legitimate investigation. So it's all a false narrative. It's all a cover-up. There's no if and when. That's why I'm, I'm anxious to have the world hear this story because all of these folks need to be held accountable from Hennepin County to the crime lab to Plymouth Police Department. Okay. What I'm doing right now, if you see me writing down, is one, it is one thing I'm trying to do is I'm trying to simplify. I'm trying to make a, a timeline that makes sense. Okay. That's so, right. yeah. so I, I want you to help me here because I, yeah. you know, I want it to be common sense or I want it to make sense to somebody. So sure. the fight occurs between Mrs. X and David. Okay. Mm -hmm. Then there's oil poured. Then there's oh, the, yeah. okay. Then, uh, David supposedly pushes Mrs. X out of the apartment. That's right. Okay. Then he sets himself on fire, allegedly. Yep. Okay. Then the worker comes in, puts him out. Yeah. Okay. After that, the worker, what is, what is the time gap between the worker coming out and the police arriving? Is that the 38 minutes? Oh, not at all. No, no. What, what is so, that? What is that time gap? Every we have every reason to believe um, that the fire was started before she exited. I won't get into that evidence now because it's complex. Okay, that's fine. Um, the timeline is this guy lived in the same apartment down, I believe, on the first floor. He ran up. He was up there within probably two minutes from the time the fire alarms went off. Okay, and then the police literally arrived within a minute. So that's the timeline. So then you have police officers there. They touch the doorknob to see if it's hot was one comment. And then eventually they prop open the door. And then you're probably talking 10 minutes, 12 minutes from the time the fire, the first 911 call came in. And um, uh, you have the fire and rescue people there. So you've got We've counted, there's over a dozen people ready and waiting to go in, but they say, no, you can't go in there because Miss X had scared them. Because so the that's where they made their mistake. I mean, it's so stupid. All they'd have to have done, you know, as soon as they threw in the knife, all bets are off. There's no turning back. And it becomes like Pinocchio, one thing after another. Do, have you ever heard any uh, report or any conversation if the police asked when the maintenance worker come in to extinguish David, if he saw the knife or saw him as threatening. Um, no, no. I mean, he, you know, again, I, what, I don't know. Cause wouldn't that, 
Okay. Yeah, I don't know if he said any, you know, what the interview was. Obviously, they learned that he put out the fire. I have a hard time believing that he wouldn't say that I saw him because he told the state fire marshal it was the most horrifying thing I've ever seen in my life. And I don't, you know, really want to talk about it. So how does a maintenance worker go in there, regardless of how much alcohol he had consumed and remembers that, is horrified by it, and, but he doesn't tell the police. Oh yeah, I put out the fire, but yeah, I'm, I didn't tell you that I saw him and shot him with the fire. And it, why is the notation in the fire marshal report that no one saw the man? It, it's just a big cover up. It's just, it's laughable. If it wasn't about my son, it's laughable. Yes, sir. And I, I'm not trying to make a joke out of it. I promise. Oh no, no, no. Um, I, I think that your maintenance worker, along with your other four key points, is your biggest deal. I think that if with all the the police that we've worked with and the things that we've done, I think that the what they would have done, and if any police officers that listen to the show, we know we have a good bit, please email me and let me know if I'm wrong in this assumption. They would have wanted to speak directly to the last person that was in the apartment. The maintenance worker would have been the last person in the apartment. He would have identified they would have went off his word more than they would have probably went off of uh, Mrs. X. If he was not threatening at that point, they should have rushed in there. That's probably where you have got just complete negligence on their part. I mean, I just, I, I don't know how they didn't. You, I already believed everything that you, that you said anyway, but the fact that they didn't go off of if, what even if he was drunk, even if he is a drunk, uh, I don't, I, I, you don't seem like the type that, that really drinks, sir. And I mean, that is a compliment, I do, sure. but but I am somebody who likes to drink. And I will tell you one thing there are certain things in this world that the second that you see it or the second you get scared or whatever, you sober up and you know exactly what happens, regardless of the amount of alcohol you have drank or, or, or whatever you've done. There is no way. That that is not as something. If he was aware enough to run into an apartment and help your son, that he was not aware of what was going on. Um, right. That that seems like more of a cover up than anything else that you had said. That they they made a mistake and they knew that they had made a mistake. Absolutely, and and keep in mind too that um, there there's all indications that there was a second pour. In other words, David was lit on fire. I believe, you know, the the hypothesis would be David was lit on fire. He ended up getting on the bed and laying on the bed for a minute or two. And that's when he got up when the maintenance worker came and shot him. And you got to understand his condition here. Um, He would have been completely in shock and not knowing what's he's blind. He shoots him with this fire extinguisher. And then David went around the corner, stumbled around and eventually ended up on a love seat for most of the, and just sat there the whole time. So it's a smoke filled apartment. The maintenance worker wouldn't see any knife or what have you. He got the heck out of there is what their testimony is because the smoke was so thick that was poured that second pour over the stove um, that they said was the ignition storks, which is again, Complete utter nonsense. See, you folks need to pay attention and go to this webpage. And if you want to stop this corruption, especially in Hennepin County, uh, I can detail and I will uh, the long history of the of the 
Hennepin County's attorney's office protecting police. I mean, and, and again, we I can expound. I could talk 20 minutes on that alone, but we'll leave it alone. It's a corrupt institution. We go back to George Floyd. Okay, that's that's the county we're talking about here. And um, it's not until recently that uh, Keith Ellison, who's the new attorney general, has you know got his own uh, uh, aggressive prosecutors to prosecute the case uh, against uh, Chauvin and uh, against Porter, which I, I think was an injustice, but that's just my opinion. So there's a changing of the guard down there. So um, I'm going to let you go, but I want to say two things before we go. Um, yeah. One, the area you live in, I happen to have two extremely good friends that I just went on vacation with not long ago that uh, are, are big on social media. I'm not going to say their names because I don't want to uh, out them. Uh, what you just said with police corruption in that area is something that I, I'm from Georgia and we don't, we obviously have it, but we just, you know, it's kind of, we don't, we don't see it as much. And they explained to us how big it was there. And I would have never thought it was that big of an issue there. And they, so my heart goes out to each and every family that's had to deal with it. And I'm sorry to what you had to deal with. Um, I don't know if this is professional or not, but from what I've heard, uh, could I make a hypothesis or could I guess what I think happened that night? Absolutely. All right. This, this is what I think from what, and please, I mean, no disrespect about any of this. This is what I think happened. And uh, I just want to say this beforehand. I have not talked about this as Mr. Scott. I just, I'm, I'm playing detective right now. I think from what you just said, the last little bit about the bed, then ending up on the couch. I think your son was in bed. That's how it started. I think Mrs. X threw the oil on him. It started there. The second bit, it woke him up. It startled him. He got hit again in the kitchen. She already had the keys, the dog, and everything ready at the door. She ran out the door. She forgot to lock it. And I think that's what happened. I think he was stunned. I think it, the smoke, the fire, and everything ate him up. He ended up on the couch. I think that I think I think that's what happened. Yep. I, I mean, I believe that. And like I said, it's a very complex story. And I just want to encourage all your listeners that if you think as a society we should tolerate this nonsense, you know, then do nothing. But if you think we should stand up and make a change, then sign the petition and support our family in this endeavor, because you're not just supporting us, you're supporting uh, society and you're supporting all the honest, hardworking police officers that risk their lives every day. Yes, sir. Mr. Scott, tell them one more time that website so they can go see all this. Sure. Truthfordavid.com. Watch it closely. We'll be dropping more and more information. We've had in less than a week, uh, actually, it's a week today, seven days. We have probably now, as we're speaking, 24,000 petition signers. And um, we want Governor Waltz to, to appoint a, a special prosecutor and to hear our concerns and hold these people accountable. And I'm talking about uh, there's prosecutorial misconduct here as far as Hennepin County goes. Um, and it goes deep. State Fire Marshal, I don't know how the state fire marshal, who is a, a certified fire inspector, can uh, conclude that it was cooking oil. That's what they put in their official report. 
it's all scientifically, uh, whatever the, the phrasing is, it was scientific. It was cooking oil who poured. They didn't do any tests on the oil. They didn't want to know what it was. Everything. This whole thing goes from bad to worse. But, you know, things like this happen to hold these folks accountable because they've just uh, they've just gone on with this nonsense too long. Well, Mr. Scott, I just want you to know you, your family and David are in our prayers here. And uh, God bless y'all. And thank you for doing my show, sir. Thank you, sir. God bless you and sign the petition. Yes, sir. And thank each and every one of y'all for listening to politics, religion, and whiskey. Please, y'all go sign the petition and be the change.